Welcome to Ancient Answers, our program that discusses current and modern challenges by referencing the words of ancient thinkers that deal with similar matters of the human condition. My name is Shane. And I'm Gordon. And today we are going to be talking about climate. Climate change, actually. Yeah, which you wouldn't you wouldn't really think of as an ancient topic, but as it turns out, like most things that we discuss on this show, things really haven't changed as much as we are led to believe. Very much relevant today. It's in the news. We are all worried about what our industrialization may be doing to the uh, climate of this planet. No, oh, yeah, we know there's always talk in the news about uh, the Green New Deal or the Paris Climate Accord or the Kyoto Accords and 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 and. Uh, so, but it's it's interesting to see that climate has actually had tremendous effects on human civilization throughout the course of of history. It did, yeah. it did, and I mean, we understand the recognize that ancient peoples did not really have a scientific basis to perceive how the world was functioning, weather patterns, climate patterns. Uh, they were just worried that it would rain at the right time so mm -hmm. that the crops would come out because eighty to ninety percent of Civilization, you know, the populations of these civilizations that we're going to reference to shortly were what we would call farmers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, for they sure. were pretty dependent on making sure the rains and whoever they prayed to was making sure the rains would come down. However, science these days, particularly in the last you know ten to twenty years, has opened up some interesting insights into some patterns about well. We'll count the period from roughly 3000 BC to around 1000 AD. Mm -hmm. And we now recognize that there are some interesting traces in the, in the natural record that science is, is getting access to. So things like tree rings, mm -hmm. uh, slagmite growth, uh, uh, pollen. Yeah, pollen's found. You made a reference to a couple other uh, aspects. Yeah, like uh, uh, drilling for ice ice core samples in like the Arctic and Antarctic, and studying the different striations and layers through that. And and they're like scientists are looking at the microscopic level for evidence of things that happened all around the globe in these very specific areas because th these things, so like the the core samples and these stalactites, stalagmites, tree rings, they all hold evidence for big global events, actually. It's That's incredible right. what they what scientists can learn. I'm all, we're obviously no experts on this, but it's in, it's insanely fascinating to read about. Well, our, our research is just sort of amateur historians who enjoy learning about mm -hmm. the past. Yeah. It is interesting that we're able to apply these scientific research, scientific investigations into the past and begin to find out that there are mechanisms in the natural world, mm -hmm. we've just mentioned a few of them, yeah. that may have had much bigger impact on ancient history to to in a sense our you know ancient humans who were completely oblivious to the great forces that worked on this planet mm -hmm. and uh, there's been of course now re you know recognition that even wind patterns and and those were changing or fluct fluctuated from back and forth shifted around uh, they would bring different intermittent levels of rain, which is the crucial effect of all. But also areas where it became more, much drier. Yep. We'll give an example. We definitely have evidence that the Nile River Basin is never was never quite as you know cut and dry like it is today, where you can put one foot in the green and one foot in the desert. Yeah. Uh, that in fact it was much wider grasslands up 
until around the year 2000 BC. So during the time of the pyramid's construction, a, a, a worker would have looked out on basically a green prairie. Grassland. Grassland. Which, which is, prairie, which is yeah. it, it's kind of crazy to think about because you think of the, the pyramids as they stand now, and it's it's the pyramids in just this this sea of, of yellowish brown sand. Yeah, that's right. And to imagine that as as a relatively lush verdant backdrop to the pyramids is it's it's unusual to picture anyway. Well, I, I thought it was actually quite profound that just recently I watched a show, one of those David Attenberg shows. Okay, oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> they have a they have a, a an image of the uh, of a satellite image of the. Mesopotamia, Mediterranean, sorry, and of course Egypt's there. And of course, the lights of the cities of Egypt are just like this ribbon with yeah. this little fan at the top, and that's it. Yeah, it's darkness everywhere else. Yeah, it just it just follows the river. It just follows right? the river. Yeah. It kind of gives you an idea that that's the case. And yet, all during that time, with very few exceptions, the Egyptian record seems to indicate that the Nile f- flooded. So much like a clock every mm-hmm. year, bringing its much, much needed uh, silt down into the growing and delta area, which was the lifeblood of the entire society yep. and kept that society going for over 3,000 years. But it is interesting to note that some of these periods that we're actually able to record interruptions to the water flow do coincide, in particular two cases, with the two intermediate periods of Egyptian history. Okay, so sort of, sort of like a pause in... Yeah, yeah. It, okay. it, it would mean that the, the uh, estimation is that the wind currents, or the, water, the climatic currents, we'll call it, of the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. that of course feeds Ethiopia, yeah. where the source of the Blue Nile comes into, would have affected the river flow with a delay, coming down, well, going north into the uh, Mediterranean. And it was it possible that destabilization came in at some point? I mean, there has been estimated that the, the sun, for those that are aware, has an 11-year solar cycle. Oh, I didn't know that. It does. <clears throat> it has an 11-year solar cycle. We mm-hmm. see uh, uh, sunspots. It's a sunspot okay. cycle. Okay. But there does seem to be recorded now, there are scientists that are estimating that the sun seems to have um, it's hard to measure between two and three thousand year uh, cycle it's a one percent shift in solar radiation okay so it's very modest yeah but one percent translates on earth and, and when you're thinking about the output of the sun yeah a shift of one full percent is going to be pretty significant so the the peak or the optimum was around the year 2500 mm-hmm. and then it declined and then it rose again uh, in around the year 300 200 BC mm-hmm. and it lasted until about two or three hundred AD oh wow now it's hard because we have I mean we have some physical evidence uh, we we understand that uh, radioactive isotopes and other unu- un- unusual isotopes in the slagmites and slagtite layers indicate that there were different years where there were slightly increases and decreases of solar radiation, yeah. at least not to be measurable by the physical evidence left behind in cave mm-hmm. uh, drippings, uh, that the Earth has this cycle. 
Okay, it is interesting to note that the Romans did not have a lot of crop failures that are recorded in their, you know, they had a lot of good records. From roughly 250 BC to about 200 to 250 AD. Yeah. And then they begin to see more in the historical, their records, yeah. more uh, problems shifting grain shipments around the empire in order to offset places that were having failures. Oh. Or at least decreases from traditionally expected uh, grain. Yeah. And that's an interesting clue because we obviously, when we start throwing those dates out, we start to realize, oh, well, the one sort of signals the start of the Roman Empire and their unique ability to organize. But the second date mm -hmm. kind of shows that it's towards the problem when they began to have some problems. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, what... One of the biggest problems that the Romans ever faced was, of course, the threat of the Huns. Yeah. Not necessarily immediately directly, but the fact that the Huns put pressure on the Germanic tribes mm -hmm. in the 300s, forcing them to, to kind of come into Roman territory, yeah. which their administration was trying to kind of either bribe off or, you know, they would actually recruit Germanic men to serve in the legions because they figure they're showing up anyways they might as well you know talk them into being uh, legionnaires yeah but the pressure of the huns and of course where did the huns come from middle part of eurasia mm -hmm. the steppes of eurasia well evidence there shows you that what an area that was getting a reasonable amount of precipitation rain for a good couple thousand years i mean the grasslands of those areas are renowned for their, you know, they grow. They don't necessarily grow crops, but yeah. they can feed. They feed horses. Four and, horses. And, yeah, and, and livestock. And, and livestock. Yep. <clears throat> for something triggered their migration west. Now, the Huns didn't leave much of a written, written record, but we do have antidotical commentary from, granted, writers, Roman writers who didn't like him, <laughs> that said they the scourge of the Huns was because they had destroyed or God had cursed the land that they had lived in. Oh. Well, does, could that mean simply that there was a climatic shift that made it much more difficult to, to live their lifestyle there and they were forced west and just like a domino, mm -hmm. they knock on the Germans and the Germans knock on the Romans yeah. and suddenly we've got some yeah. pressure. See, and, and that's that's actually really interesting because I, I was reading about uh, that sort of situation in Southeast Asia. Now, the time I'm about to mention is is from far earlier than the time period you're speaking of. But um, among among historians and scientists, there's what they refer to as the missing millennium in, in Southeast Asia. So we're talking the area of Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, um, that, that sort of region. So there's an area between 6,000 and 4,000 B.C., where there's just nothing. They, yeah, there are human habitations beforehand. And after, but they don't really find anything during the intervening time. And so there was, there was a lot of questions as to why this was, and some researchers suggested, well, maybe we just haven't found it, but it, it did seem odd, since, again, we're finding stuff from before and after, so why not in the middle? So there's a theory that um, studying stalagmites and stalactites from a cave in Laos in particular... Because, again, it's amazing what they can figure out by studying these things. Because they, they study them the same way they do dendrochronology, like the rings of trees, uh, where they can take samples and it actually provides evidence on a microscopic scale 
for what might be happening in the region. And so they were able to discover through scientific means that are well beyond my understanding uh, that they, the area saw an extended period of significantly reduced precipitation. They're, they refer to it as a thousand year mega drought. Wow. Is what okay. they're actually calling it. And it coincides immediately with that period where we don't really see any kind of human habitation. So um, it's suspected that because all of a sudden the area started seeing less and less and less precipitation, there was seeing less and less monsoon rains, it just made it an uninhabitable area. It and makes, so people moved out. Yeah, it makes it interesting whether it was the, uh, the rotating cycle, you know, climatic patterns out of the ocean were they changing enough that mm -hmm. they were? It was literally not dropping rain. Yeah. Well, actually, the 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 leading theory is that um, what a lot of people don't realize, and I'd sort of forgotten about actually, was that the Sahara Desert used to much like the area around the Nile. The Sahara Desert wasn't always a desert. It used to be a very lush, verdant grassland, and the timing for this missing millennium actually coincides very nicely with the drying out of the Sahara Desert into a desert. Yeah. So the thought is that the drying out of the Sahara Desert actually had a domino effect that resulted in an, uh, an extended El Nino effect within the Pacific Ocean that actually made for less monsoon rains falling in the area of Southeast Asia. Well, it makes <laughs> sense. I mean, the Sahara Desert's huge. Oh, exactly. Right. You know, it's, it's For anybody, it's three times the size of the United States. So it is an area, it is like a, it's like, I sometimes imagine it's like a hot pad on a stove. Okay, you yeah, know? that's a good way of putting it, actually. <laughs> in your kitchen, you don't have to be too far away and you can still feel it yeah. radiating. And of course, we are aware that it generates the hurricanes that slam into Florida and Texas every yep. so often. So yeah, it's going to have an effect. So I can imagine that we, we let's look east and say, okay, the Indian Ocean, not a small ocean, no. it must be affected as well by circular rotations either clockwise or counterclockwise uh of the uh, of the wind patterns and would carry moisture you know there is definitely evidence that the indus valley mm -hmm. society so 3000 to roughly 2000 bc was prosperous and healthy i made a comment before we don't even have evidence they had weapons yeah so and then suddenly it just disappears mm -hmm. but what we haven't i haven't seen in any of the history writing right now is clear evidence from research was there a measurable drop in precipitation in the north indian area and yes it is because records in persia nearby of ancient societies then yeah. constantly complain and, and appeal to the gods yeah. for rain oh. okay so there must have been something going on because those areas are adjacent yeah maybe not south india but certainly north india yeah. in the indus indus river area that's adjacent to Persia yeah. and ancient Persia, and so yeah. If you if one's having a drought, it's quite likely the other place was well, seeing a drop in rain. Well, in, in this article, I was I was reading actually about this missing missing millennium specifically references the Indus Valley civilization, and it says that the period of this drought does actually coincide with the abandonment of the Indus Valley region. Uh, it also coincides with the collapse of the Akkadian Empire in the yeah. region of Mesopotamia. So now uh, these. These are, uh, they're theories, right? Like, but, but it's an interesting coincidence that, okay, well, we know for a fact that here's a large region that was heavily habitate, habitated or lived in that was all of a sudden abandoned. And then all of a sudden we're seeing abandonments here and we're seeing abandonment here and we're seeing things move on and collapse and change. Indeed. All roughly the same time as this, 
again, mega drought is going on. And, and there is one other natural phenomena we haven't mentioned yet. We're aware of a of it making an impact, and that is volcanoes. Yeah, I actually I've got some interesting. Uh, I've got an interesting. Uh, I found another interesting article about um, the eruption at Thera that I was going to touch on yep. as well. But uh, but we were aware that other volcanoes. See, if you had a volcano, and there was ones in the you know the. Uh, Indonesia area, mm-hmm. in fact, I think the biggest one of the last 100,000 years was in Indonesia, mm-hmm. but it's now Indonesia, about 70,000 years ago, uh, so powerful it would have blocked out the, the world's atmosphere for a while, mm-hmm. and even scientists are proposing that the human population was reduced to 10,000 people in Africa yeah. because the volcano literally blocked out the ability for plants to grow and photosynthesis for long periods of time. Jeez. Now, there were some volcanic events that have taken place in, the, let's say, the period of 3000 BC to zero, mm-hmm. and we know of a few of them, uh, but we, we would also know the other ones would have gone off sort of out of sight, yeah. but they would have, we now are much aware that they would have had a, uh, an atmospheric impact on places. So, for example, between 3000 BC and 1200 BC at the start of the Bronze Age collapse in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Kind of a pivotal point there. Now, there are lots of reasons why they think the uh, Bronze Age collapsed. And I'm going to make a little shout out to uh, Eric H. Klein's book, 1177 BC, (laughs) uh, which he does a marvelous job explaining some of the things that went on there. but the, the fact is, volcanoes seem to have played a role because they would have knocked out crops. Yep. Even if it wasn't a wide area, it was big enough that it would, because they didn't have you know, shipments going back and forth to even, even out that you would have these local starvation events. But there is evidence that around the year 2440, there was something that happened that seemed to cause a crisis point. Certainly Egypt had a, a crisis point, and that's an ex- a, a, a shift in dynasties. It could have been political, mm-hmm. but it is yep. interesting that it seems to coincide with the... Coincidental timing, yeah. yeah. They have evidence of an event. Something happened as more of a drought event. It would have been from the Indian Ocean between 1820 and 1790 BC. That would have affected what were fragmentary reports of the Nile not blessing people like it used to, well, we interpret that as the water flow dropped. Yeah. And that meant crop f- growing was, was in crisis point. But there is evidence that some of the temples that were adjacent to the river were left high and dry for quite a while. Uh, so much so that stonework was built only to be flooded when the rivers came back. Yeah. Okay, that's a clue that something had happened. And then later in the 1550s uh, BC, there was another event as well. Now, that event coincides with what appears to be a sharp drying period in the Mesopotamia. Okay. Again, possible Indian Ocean uh, currents shifted a little bit, mm-hmm. but it would coincide, coincide with a solar maximum. Okay. That 1% shift we talked about yeah. uh, at that time. So... Uh, if there was a slight increase in energy being received by the Indian Ocean by the sun, it would have created a drying event oh. on areas adjacent to its rotation. Jeez. And I don't want to make it's lengthy explanation, but 
you suddenly realize you throw a few volcanoes in there, like Terra, <laughs> yep. Terra, and you go, oh, the people in the ancient days were really subject to the patterns of weather. Oh, yeah. and More than you... We, we just don't think about it today. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about the weather, but how temperature, how cold, how warm. Yeah. We don't realize our lives in the ancient days depended on it. Oh, yeah. And, and now we're, there's a lot that we can discuss, and we are going to go on and do a second part of this episode. Uh, and it's just, it, But it is just incredible to understand not only how at the, at the mercy and at the whim of weather and climate the ancient peoples were, uh, but just how global it was and how yeah. events from thousands of kilometers and thousands of miles away could have these ripple effects that would echo through through time and through space. Like it, it was insane the way it affected other human civilizations far, far, far from where the actual event took place. Indeed. Well, we look forward to that for part two. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, we thank you very much for listening to this episode. Yeah, this whole idea of climate and our current uh, growth in scientific knowledge in that field has opened up a new appreciation of the flow of ancient history. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm Gordon. And I'm Shane. And thank you for listening to Ancient Answers. We'll catch you on part two. <laughs> <laughs>